Hey everyone, I'm your host Piers Kicks, and welcome back to Metaverse Musings, which is a research-focused podcast that's part of Delphi Digital. We explore the integral components behind what many believe will be the internet's successor, a virtual extension of the natural world where most of us will eventually live, work and play. To some, it represents our next great milestone as a network species, and to others, it is something to fear. With our guests, we discuss the technology, philosophy and culture behind this brave new world. If you're not yet subscribed to the Delphi Research Portal, then I fear for your soul. You're missing out on the most incisive analysis that the digital asset space has to offer. Seriously, check it out. Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. This podcast features sponsors and any ads are not an endorsement by Delphi Digital and are for informational purposes only. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Metaverse Musings. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, uh, Jamie Burke of Outlier Ventures, who is going to tell us a bit more about their operation and the new accelerator model that they've built. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. So to kick us off, could you start with a summary of your personal background, um, sort of where you were before and kind of what attracted you to crypto in the first place? Yeah, so um, I mean, I've been working in, let's call it digital for my whole career, really. Um, I originally started out in communications, advertising. I worked within the WPP groups, Martin Sorrell's WPP group. Um, at And I entered that industry at a time when the kind of Web 2 was just starting to happen. Uh, things like MySpace, Bebo, and then, of course, Facebook. And communications was being disrupted and basically everyone else in the room was too old to figure out what the hell was going on. And I was the youngest person in the room. Um, and so we just get wheeled into meetings with very large uh, accounts uh, at the time. And, you know, to, to be the person that could help explain what the hell was going on as a digital native. And so very quickly was the first person to bring in um, Facebook and MySpace into uh, WPP at JWT at the time. And then that kind of set off a career, really. Fast-tracked my career, ended up having a um, setting up a communications group specifically for Web2 and then ended up extending that into innovation more generally outside of communications, product innovation, R&D. Um, always working with very large institutions um, by the end across any number of different industries and um, exited from that uh, company and then started angel investing. And it was kind of somewhere in that journey, which would probably be eight years ago. Now I came across Bitcoin um, as a, as a consequence of looking at a peer to peer um, lending startup. And so I was looking at kind of peer to peer technologies, especially around payments and stuff. And, and kind of had that aha moment where it increasingly occupied the majority of my waking time and sometimes some of my sleeping time, uh, which led me to put all my time, attention and money into, into the blockchain space. And so seven and a half years ago, set up Outlive Ventures, which was Europe's first blockchain VC, dedicated VC to blockchain. And of course, uh, I've, have watched the industry what we could now potentially call the industry uh, evolve and grow out of that. So it's been a really interesting journey. Amazing. And it's, so, so back at that time, was it kind of just you uh, w- w- starting outlier or, or did you have others that you bought from your, your previous career along with you? Yeah. So 
Outlier's quite a unique beast in how it's structured. So we're not a GPLP fund. We don't manage the party money because at the time, nobody would give me any money, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was literally my money. And I would kind of pick up angels as I went along. I'd hold um, meetups. I had blockchain angels meetup. And first you'd have five people there and 10 people there in London. And then we grew it to about 100. And then we started doing other cities around Europe. And that was largely other angels, largely banking professionals who wanted to get exposure to the space, wanted to understand it, um, were struggling to, to kind of navigate it on their own. So I kind of organically picked up angel investors who gave me small bits of money, tens of thousands, um, to, to grow the capitalization of Outlier. And we structured it as a partnership model. But the first partner that I brought in was actually our CTO, Aaron Van Amers, who is out of the Netherlands. And that's because I'm not a coder. I you know, spent my life working with developers. Um, and I kind of uh, describe myself as a creative technologist, so I understand the principles of it. I can see how things can fit together and seem to be fairly good at um, seeing the direction of travel. But um, I'm not a coder. And so I, I kind of brought on Aaron... And at the time, I basically said, look, I'll, I'll pay you a salary for the next, I think I said 18 months. Let's just get some applied learning. Let's play around with the technology. And of course, Ethereum came along. Let's play with it. Let's break it. And we created the studio model initially because, again, there was nothing really to invest in. And there were no like businesses to invest in. Um, and so we said, well, look, let's just create some applications on top Um just to kind of get an understanding of the technology, its limitations to become better investors. And as the space matures and there are businesses, startups to invest in, we'll kind of have a better acumen understanding of the tech. And so Aaron's been here for the whole journey, the full seven and a half years, um, and really has brought this DNA and outlier of applied learning. So, you know, we dog food, we're, we're Web3 natives, and we've been breaking the code, you know, for as, as long as um, it was around. So, uh, yeah, so Aaron was the, the first one. And then there was a series of kind of angel investors. And several of those angel investors ended up kind of working full time as we effectively grew a management team and a board um, and began to look and operate like a business, um, but effectively backed by what is now over 30 partners. That's amazing. So you mentioned your CTO there was out was out in uh, the Netherlands. Um, the, I know you guys are sort of based out of London, but uh, where else? I guess uh, some of the team members. Yeah, we're we're all over the place really. So of the thirty partners, um, only I don't know a small handful are UK based. The rest are all over the place from the US, um, Canada, uh, Switzerland, Germany, Spain you know, you, you name it. Um, and uh, in terms of the staff that, that kind of the personnel who are, you know, full time that, that run the partnership day to day and allow us to carry out all of our activities. Um, we're a bit more biased towards the UK, but we've got people in India, in, um, uh, in, in Prague, for example, we just hired somebody in Prague, we got somebody in Greece, um, so we're pretty distributed as a course, as a consequence of this year, 2020, we, we've kind of just continued with being more decentralized. We were beginning to coalesce 
prior to COVID into hubs. So we were like London, Berlin, and Toronto. Um, but as a consequence of, of what's happening with COVID, we've both virtualizing our accelerator, which is what we mo- we evolved into, um, because that's now uh, distributed. You know, the, the team can be distributed. And so, you know, we, we, we basically tap into where the best people are. Of course, like we have to be considerate of time zones. But, you know, so on the whole, um, we, we try to avoid being anywhere past India to the east and um, the east coast or at least, um, you know, Midwest uh, uh, to the west. Sure. Could could you provide some color on the kind of underlying thesis that motivated you to start Outlier? And then perhaps, I guess, given how long you've uh, been sort of running this mission, uh, how, how that may have evolved as well? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's evolved a lot. It's still evolving because the space is evolving and, and it gets more complex, as I'm sure you know. I mean, it gets more complex, not less. So uh, I would like to say I had a thesis when I started. I mean, I really didn't. It was just that having having been through the Web2 cycle and seeing you know what peer to peer or what was supposed to be peer to peer did around you know communications for example um, actually much more mediated peer to peer as we now know with these kind of platform monopolies but there was a lot of utopia going into that the idea that peer to peer would do away with broadcast media and of course we can see on the one hand there's been huge positive gains um, but at a societal level there's also been a lot of negative consequence if you look at what's going on in an incredibly polarized media now and polarized world as a as a consequence. So I guess, you know, having having gone through that and then coming into Web3 or what I seemed like Web3 as I understood the idea of digital scarcity, the idea that something could be both digital and scarce was for me revolutionary because I looked at what Web2 did to the music industry or, you know, the entertainment industry more generally. Um, and uh, so, so you know, the, the principle of digital scarcity was was inc- incredibly powerful to me. And then the second thing was, of course, this idea that you could have a distributed ledger and effectively move value, programmable value, around on the internet uh, in a permissionless way. Now, having worked largely with enterprise um, since my early twenties and through Web two, I realised that the large majority of these organizations um, would never touch Bitcoin. Now, that doesn't mean like, you know, banks won't have it directly or indirectly exposure to it as an asset. But in terms of like a payment rails or anything else, um, that was just never going to happen in my mind. So, um, so I think kind of coming at it pragmatically, I felt that there was a lot of promise that, Bitcoin represented a fundamental primitive in the concept of money, digital money native to the internet, but there was going to be a lot more. And I was always kind of multi-chain since day one, um, been pretty consistent about that and, you know, glad to see that's kind of played out. But of course, that's like a very basic, um, basic thesis. As I said, you know, there weren't really any startups, I think, Mm. um, in the first year and a half, we spoke to a thousand blockchain startups using air quotes um which led me to write a blog post which was um fairly infamous at the time pretty forgotten now um which was uh 
99% of blockchain startups are bullshit. And that was based on the premise that most of the startups that we were speaking to hadn't fully grasped the paradigm of Web3. They were just looking at, um, you know, uh, almost um, window dressing, blockchain window dressing. And they hadn't, they were trying to build very conventional businesses and using very conventional business models. Um, so again, what was clear to me, it was clear to me what was different or what was going to be different or what wouldn't work, but like what the alternative would be was was definitely very hazy. Um, around 2000 and what would it be now? 16, I think. Um, we brought on our third person, which, which was Lawrence Lundy, who's our head of research, who's now still a partner in the firm, um, but but not functionally the head of research we kind of now distributed that across the team rather than having it centralized into one person and um we we kind of began to develop a thesis which was the convergence thesis so this was the idea that we became increasingly convinced that dlt should be shouldn't be looked at in isolation um, it should be looked at in the context of what we would now call web3 but what we understood as a new data economy so effectively blockchains were a way to um, you know, transport, organize, and commodify data. And of course, data could be anything. It could be um, an asset or um, associated to, to, to something else. Um, and in that context, you would need to look at the production, the kind of distribution, transportation, and then the consumption of data. So um, we looked at the convergence of IoT for the production of data, DLT, and for the distribution and organization, and then AI machine learning for consumption. And so we, we kind of developed a stack as we saw it, or we, a kind of framework, which we would then place startups, blockchain startups in that context where they fitted in production, distribution, or consumption. And that led us to be kind of the lead investor in Toyota at the time, a lead institutional investor, because they were you know playing around with the IT um, aspect and you know different forms of well non-blockchain a DAG to to to, to allow that to happen. Um, it led us to being a friends and family round of Ocean Protocol, which of course is really coming into its own only now, uh, much later than we thought, with things like initial data offerings, this commodification of data, um, and then things like Fetch.ai, which is you know built by the ex DeepMind people to create. Um, uh, ledger technology or AI Lego that could allow for greater levels of um, consumption of data on blockchains and off for machine learning. So we we kind of invested and incubated projects within that convergence thesis at the infrastructure layers. We stopped for several years investing in middleware application layer, and we focused on infrastructure. We felt that after the back of the the ninety nine percent of blockchain startups are bullshit, we just felt there needed to be infrastructure built before we begin to see a lot of these use cases um, be able to scale. And you know, I think that's only just true now um, as a lot of this Web three stacks matured. And so that then led into, and I think so. We were definitely right. I think it took a bit longer than we'd thought. Um, but it's good to see things like, you know, Ocean Fetch, um, what was Enigma now, secret um, secret network, building out kind of privacy tech. And at the heart of all of that was user centricity. So how can we embed 
privacy by default and user centricity at the heart of the new data economy, as opposed to what it is today, which is um, your platform monopolies that have data monopolies, which are increasingly becoming AI monopolies. And we felt that was bad for business, bad for society, um, bad for the digital economy generally. Um, And so now in the last, uh, I think, 18 months, we we began to think that enough infrastructure has been built or would be coming to market, you know, with things like Polkadot later down the line, Cosmos Polkadot, um, things like Filecoin. And so we would focus more on the middleware. So making this infrastructure stuff usable, first for the 90% of developers, um, and then um, the application layer uh, where we would begin to see this stuff applied into uh, particular use cases that were only now just possible. <clears throat> so um, increasingly that's coalesced into um, NFTs, kind of creative industries, uh, DeFi, of course, but still this open data economy, things like privacy tech, both in an enterprise context and a consumer context. So they're the kind of three investment areas um, for the accelerator now when we work with Uh, 30 startups a year in three cohorts of 10 from all around the world within those three domains and often but not not exclusively building upon a lot of the infrastructure that we invested in over the last you know seven years or so Mm -hmm. super interesting i i want to jump onto the nft stuff in a moment but um yeah i I guess is is there any other sort of color you can give on the outlier accelerator model because i I think it's um you know you you guys weren't always focused on that what was it uh that kind of led you there yeah so as i said it was really because we we felt that enough infrastructure was now uh, had been built or was being built and that really what now needed to happen like our our mission i mean we're investors but our mission is we want to see web3 happen that's like the reason why we get up in the morning you know we believe in these principles that i described earlier we believe that that's important to kind of both fix the web but also enable um its future in in things like the metaverse which as you say i'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit later um so we believe the dna of web3 is is critically important especially actually in the context of the metaverse and making sure it's an Mm. open metaverse so um so you know we, we kind of focus on infrastructure because we believe without the infrastructure the applications wouldn't be possible we now focused on making that infrastructure usable via middleware for developers and begin to see it applied in um, domains like like DeFi and, and NFT, and so um, as an accelerator, on the one hand, I mean it's a it's a five month accelerator, three month intense like daily program, and then two month after after support. Um, and you know, depending upon where we are in the cycle, so when we were in the winter before the whole DeFi thing kicked off. Um, in spring of this year, 2020, we were pretty much in a winter. Now we continued to accelerate projects. We actually accelerated 21 projects during winter, which actually made us one of the most active investors, not by capital deployed, but by investments made, um, uh, not just in Europe, but globally, um, where many other investors weren't investing. We continued, uh, to help projects at pre-seed seed stage. Um, now at that time, we advise many to just focus on equity and building equity-based businesses. Several of those are now, now they've nailed 
like product market fit with a business, revenue generating customers. They're now looking at how they can token optimize their business and uh, increase decentralization, increase automation. So we've got eight of those now in a 12-week program we're in the middle of, which will like a rapid token launch program. They'll all be bringing tokens to market um, before the end of the year or Q1 2021. Um, but now we're back in, now we've been back in, I wouldn't say um, it's not a bull run, but it's certainly a crypto spring or Web3 spring, um, especially in the context of pre-seed seed. The markets are very depressed at the moment, but pre-seed seed is incredibly active. It's a seller's market, especially if you have a token and especially if you're in DeFi and NFTs. And so um, with the last cohort, the summer cohort, um, I would say half of those were token based out the gate the other half equity and we're now just um, concluding applications for um, the winter cohort which will start january 2021 and i would say of the 10 startups going into that eight have a token um, i would say uh the it's half nft half DeFi, and some of them are even nft DeFi crossover which i guess we'll talk about a little bit later which i'm very excited by <laughs> um and so on the one hand like an accelerator is an accelerator. Like our job is to find pre-seed C-stage startups, help them establish product market fit, you know, objectively show traction um, and close a large C round for as, as strong evaluation as possible. Um, so some of that is just kind of classic startup. But of course, as I alluded to right at the beginning, um, it's helping people build businesses in a Web3 context. And there are some things that are the same and there's some things that are very different. And effectively, um, I'm amazed at how many people are still building startups in a Web2 paradigm, Web2 business models. They're effectively going to be stillborn. You know, they're birthing those startups into a into an entirely new paradigm. So mm. we help them think through sustainability um, of business model in a decentralized context, in a Web3 context. We help them bake in privacy by design. Um, and for many, we'll, even if they start off as an equity-based business, we'll say, okay, well, how do you find ledger fit? You know, technically, can, technically and economically, can a ledger support your use case at scale? Um, and then if they are looking to, or looking to explore a token, you know, how could... A token be used to um, optimize, you know, a game effectively um, around uh, or within a market, and allow for greater degrees of decentralization and, and automation. And so now we're kind of back in this crypto spring, um, where previously we, the, the accelerator was focused on just make a good business in the Web three context, an equity business. Now it's either a bit more hybrid, or it's you know tokenized out the gate, and so. Like we dial that up or down, depending on where the market is. We're like a um, an all seasons accelerator. We're not like you know market dependent. Some accelerators come and go depending upon whether tokens are in vogue or not. Um, we we really help the startups that we work with be resilient because they might we might start working with them. They might even raise money in a crypto bull run, um, and by the time they want to bring something to market, they could be in a, a bear market, and so. The important thing for us is, is that we build resilient, real businesses um, that have the optionality as to when they might, you know, choose to to birth a tokenized instance 
of what they're doing into the market. Mm, it's, it's really interesting. I, I love your sort of framing and approach to it as well, given the whole uh, Web2 background. It's definitely definitely an interesting angle. Um, I can't help but notice sort of gravitation towards NFTs. Uh, you mentioned DeFi too, but NFTs in particular lately in a, in a lot of the content you've been pushing out. Um, what is it that you and the team find particularly attractive uh, about this space? Yeah, so there's there's several things. Um, so the, the the journey, I mean, obviously I've been aware of NFTs for a long time. I I kind of didn't look at them seriously for quite a while until um, summer holiday. So I managed to, there was a window of time where I managed to get out of the UK to Greece and back um, uh, during this whole lockdown and kind of took a family holiday. And it's like very difficult for me to, actually have a holiday and switch off because i'm just so excited about what i like work it's not work it's like a hobby as much as it is work um it's intellectually stimulating so like you know some people read a book i i kind of like to just do some research have time to do some research whilst i don't have a number of you know things flying at me tasks flying at me from a day to day and so i thought i did a podcast with jake brookman of coin fund who's a, a good friend of ours and he was kind of, you know, going on and on about NFTs and I should really look at it again. I said, oh, I'm going to go spend some time just doing some uh, beach um, beach and like pool research rather than desk research. Um, and I kind of just looked at the NFT space, looked at what was going on in some of the NFT art communities. and was just blown away. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe the level of how much it had evolved, both in terms of the platform, the technology, the volume and quality of uh, NFT um, and the range of spectrum of, of how the technologies, the standards have been leveraged. And so um, that really kind of put me back on it. And I, I kind of look at it in two ways. So on, on the one hand, um, I think my, my belief in the thesis that's evolved and we kind of put this out as DeFi 2.0, we, we broke it into retail and institutional. Um, I think there's a, a third piece, which is why the open metaverse needs Web3, and that's that's NFTs plus everything else that we've just built around the data economy and data, data custody and portability of identity. But specific to NFTs, I, I personally got very interested in this idea that, um, so on the one hand, if you look at everything that's been happening in DeFi, um, we've proven that tokenization is a very powerful incentive mechanism to bootstrap liquidity in borrowing and lending um, and potentially you know other use cases in a in a financial context um, but uh, the thing that was broken or the reason why DeFi didn't cross over was because really uh, this kind of yield was a form of subsidized marketing you know people were um, offering a form of yield to attract um, very promiscuous liquidity um, that was unsustainable, and there was no lock-in. So once that became, you know, revealed to be unsustainable, or somebody else could come along and just print more, um, more supply, then um, the liquidity would just jump in, into um, that next pool. And so I became convinced that the thing was miss the, the thing that was missing for that was NFTs in a context of loyalty. So rather than uh, rewarding users to provide liquidity or a, um, a function in DeFi through printing 
you know, very loose monetary policy, basically printing more money, um, you could you could provide a form of sustainable yield plus some form of alternative reward, which could be an NFT um, or a, a variety of NFT as a, a form of loyalty. And, and so you, you have ac- user acquisition, liquidity acquisition through yield, and then you have uh, user uh, liquidity retention through NFTs. And I think you look at, you look at Aave and Aave Gotche, um, whilst it feels kind of a bit silly, um, it's a, it's, it works. It's a functionally really good example uh, of how NFTs could be used to close the loyalty loop and build sustainable businesses. And so that, that kind of really triggered my thinking about NFTs generally as a loyalty mechanism um, on top of the acquisition mechanisms that we kind of perfected now in crypto generally and outside of DeFi. Um, then I think you begin to, to start to understand, well, if, 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 we, if, if the creative industries, for example, could leverage this infrastructure we've built both in terms of DeFi, this kind of economic layer, plus everything that we've been doing in the data economy, then um, that could allow for a form of experimentation and business models um, in pretty much every creative industry um, in the way that we've seen in DeFi. And so that that felt very powerful. Art is the most obvious one because it's a premium asset, like low, low liquidity, low volume turnover and high value assets, which obviously could still be supported by Ethereum 1 as it is today. Um, but of course, then we've got loads of other innovations happening with Flow and stuff, which are bespoke to NFTs. And so... Um, I think on the one hand, NFTs are powerful, loyalty generally, mechanism for Web3. Um, At the same time, I think they allow for programmability and business model innovation where Web3 is perhaps user-centric. NFTs can allow for creator-centricity in the context of creative industries. Um, But beyond that, I mean, NFTs um, could be anything the person that best described it, I was on a panel with Roham of Dapper Labs, and he said, look, most things in life are non-fungible. Um, there's very few things that are actually fungible. One of those is currency, right? which is why it works really well with things like Bitcoin. But like most things in your life are non-fungible. Um, and so the use case, the range of use case for NFTs is unlimited. And so in an institutional context outside of collectibles and stuff like that, um, an insurance policy could be an NFT. Um, you know, it's unique, it has unique criteria, and it could be traded in the secondary market, it could be an asset that could be borrowed against. And by the way, I think, um, coming back to the NFT plus DeFi, so in a, where I was saying NFTs could close a loyalty loop for DeFi, I also think NFTs can leverage DeFi as a form of collateral. So people can um, borrow against NFT collateral to um, acquire more bootstrap collections if you're an art collector. It's really interesting. There's something called uh, nftfi.com. Um, I'm not an investor, mm-hmm. but um, I was speaking with one of the guys from there, and he was saying currently the only way to price your collection of collectibles or digital fine art to establish a true floor, price floor for that asset, is to borrow against it. So if you can you know, um, borrow against that NFT, you know, somebody who wants to acquire that NFT by default will establish, the market will establish a floor. And so I think we're starting to see DeFi and NFTs compounding each other in both directions, accelerating one another. 
Um, but the most exciting thing for me about NFTs are they are the crossover opportunity for crypto generally, because coming back to this idea of fungible and non-fungible, like most people on the planet will never go to Binance or Coinbase and buy Bitcoin or Ether or any other cryptocurrency. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, maybe maybe people might get some exposure to Bitcoin, but like other, other more complex forms of um, cryptocurrency, for, for want of a better word, I think are just conceptually out of the grasp of most people. Um, however, most people do get the idea of collecting art, you know, trading cards, earning loyalty points, um, you know, getting digital merchandise for an artist or a sports club that they're involved in. Um, a lot of this stuff, especially digital fine art, which is why I'm so interested in it, is highly visual stuff, right? It's it's a it's something that you can it can catch your eye in an Instagram channel. So I, I like I create um, all the all the NFT art that I collect. I create a you know grab a, a, a GIF or a MP4 uploaded in, into Instagram, people see it and like it. They don't even understand it's an NFT yet. But by liking that that visual thing that catches their eye in an existing Web2 channel, they might then click the link, go through and establish, oh, well, what's this thing? This is still, I, could, I could buy this on OpenSea? What's OpenSea? Well, okay, what's an NFT? Um, so I think it's going to be the gateway drug. These things are highly viral, highly visual. They can tap into these pre-existing um, social communities, channels like TikTok, mm. Instagram, Facebook, and that will bring people into crypto. And I, I just to kind of complete that thought, um, I believe, you know, NFT platforms, I don't think they'll be general ones. I think they'll increasingly specialize. These will be the Binances of this next cycle. They'll be bigger than the Binances of these next cycles because they are the marketplaces and gateways to crypto um, for a much, much larger percentage of the global population. Um, so so I personally think that NFTs are going to be the trigger for a bull run that will be at least at least 4x of the 2017 ICO mania and more crazy, but long-term more sustainable. Yeah, we uh, we love to hear it. Um, couldn't, couldn't agree more though on, on the, the point about them sort of you know, being much more sort of intuitive. And you also mentioned, uh, touched upon the kind of social component too. There's a point that Andrew made when I was chatting with him uh, about how all in all, um, aside from it being, you know, significantly less sort of complicated and easier to get, that social element um, is way more appealing. Like uh, it's always someone else on the other side of a trade or an auction, right? Instead of just an order book, um, which which was I thought was an interesting point. Um you touched upon flow and what they're building. Do you, have you have you seen any other kind of competing non fungible goods, uh, non fungible token standards uh, that you think kind of have any merit? Obviously, we've got uh, D goods on EOS uh, and, and Flow coming out with their own one now. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think there are a number of you know, platforms and protocols that are looking to specifically focus on. NFTs. I know Nia are making a lot of inroads um, into the space, and um, Flow. I'm a big big fan of Flow and, and what they're doing. Um, I think you know each are trying to serve. As I said, the NFT use case is so broad um, that 
I don't think any one platform will necessarily, you know, solve for this. And I think if you look at, um, oh, the name escapes me now. I think Luxo, um, you know, Luxo was founded by um, the, the the person that created the um, ERC twenty standard and, and several others, and specifically focusing on, um, you know, creative use cases around NFT and crypto. And so. I'm just really excited by the range of use case. You know, you, t- you mentioned that the social point, I think that's really important too, um, because these things are in a way social currencies and the ownership of them, people are um, sharding them at the moment, but I think fractional ownership of these assets is going to be really important. Um, you know, people are creating personal tokens, artists are creating collection tokens. I think galleries will create gallery tokens. Um, so you know the the kind of range and configuration of these things is is kind of going to be innumerable. That's kind of what excites me most about it. Um, you know which which platform is going to dominate the space at this stage is too early to tell. As I said, I, I think people. You know what I've seen since since I've been just generally investing and then specifically investing in. Web3 is that everybody starts out wanting to own everything. Like everybody thinks, you know, they're creating standards that will 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 be generalizable and they'll capture, you know, market share of a whole range of use cases. And what inevitably happens is um, what should happen is things get specialized, either organically because they're just people adopt them in specific ways and they get network effect around particular use cases or it just turns out that when the rubber hits a tarmac they're just better at certain things than others and so um, i think at the moment everybody's everybody's claim is that they're going to kind of own nft generally uh, i think just because of the range and complexity of use case that i think we'll begin to see over the next decade um, various platforms specialize however i do believe that um, because of the configurability of even things within, say, Polkadot or Cosmos, um, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in a multi-universe context. Mm, absolutely. The um, the other big use case for NFTs uh, that you know everyone was harping on about uh, uh, games. Um, had Robbie from Immutable on most recently, and he put it well, saying he thinks that uh, NFTs in the context of video games are actually the Trojan horse for global blockchain adoption. Um, is that uh, a use case uh, that you've sort of looked into that you're, that you're excited about? And uh, I guess also um, the role that games more broadly and sort of game engines are driving in, in bringing about the metaverse. Um, yeah. How, how does that tie into your thought? Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's, two, there's two, two answers to the question. So on the one hand, I think if you look at, you know, what is a Web3 native, um, whether they know it or not yet, they're probably quite similar to what you would say is a, a kind of gaming native, both like the culture of clans, collaboration, um, this this idea of um, digital wealth. So I, I imagine that there are many kind of hardcore gamers now who's the majority of whose wealth will forever be digital. Like, you know, the the, the physical wealth that they will own is going to be marginal compared to the digital wealth that they own. And so in that context, you know, 
this is already like mentally, philosophically, they're already very well aligned. Um, the the big question is, uh, for now, a lot of that wealth hasn't been portable. And so this comes to the idea of uh, an open metaverse versus just like a, a metaverse dominated by a handful of platforms. So most gaming, you know, games, gaming environments, gaming platforms have this kind of lock-in. Um, and so... You know, the vision for an open metaverse is, well, how do you allow for user centricity rather than platform centricity? How do you allow for portability of identity, data, assets? These are all things that Web3 can enable. And so, you know, my big my big thing at the moment is helping people in who are pioneers in the metaverse understand that the metaverse to be an open metaverse and not to become a dystopic one, needs Web3. And Web3 has a decade of building out this infrastructure to allow for identity, you know, asset portability, self-custody, um, peer-to-peer decentralized marketplaces, borrowing and lending against digital wealth and assets. Um, you know, Soon we're going to start to see mortgages and stuff like that backed by NFT collateral. And so um, I think that this you know, these billions of users um, that are gamers from casual to hardcore gamers um, are a perfect target audience for all this Web3 technology. Um, the challenge for us is how do we make all that usable and abstract the complexity so they don't have to, you know, become experts in crypto um, to make that happen. And so we've made several investments, Crucible, um, crucible.network, is focused on the identity, avatar identity, digital assets, portability. And they're going to be doing some really interesting things around um, leveraging your in-game assets as collateral in a DeFi context. Um, and, you know, we've, we've kind of got s- several more coming down the pipe that are in that space. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in all of that. And actually, if you think about NFTs, so most NFTs at the moment, I did a tweet recently which talked about how I see the phasing of NFTs roll out. So most NFTs um, at the moment are what I call self-referential crypto art or collectibles. It's, you know, no offense to the people that are creating it. It's fairly low aesthetic um, and lo-fi in terms of, you know, uh, the technical competency required to make the art. Um but you know they've kind of they've got these secondary markets forming around them. The next thing, which is where I'm focused personally as a private collector of digital art, NFT art, is visual communications professionals who do this as a job, either at an ad agency or a design agency or in, in, a, in a, a gaming production company, leveraging that technology um, to make high tech forms of assets very visually eye catching. Um, and so I think we're going to be moving from. Uh, a collectible you keep in a wallet and you know maybe you show off in a in a very nerdy sub forum somewhere to um a, an asset that you would you know highly visual asset that you would first share through most social channels but then begin begin to experience and so I've been investing in digital art that is not just static it's like multimedia so it's people building things in gaming engines um uh, I'm increasingly looking at people who are creating VR sculptures, objects. So basically NFTs that can be not just collected, but that can be experienced 
in virtual environments like Decentraland, like Somnium, mm. like CryptoVoxels. And so then very quickly, these things become social experiences. And I think like the minute that NFTs can allow for gamers to earn and win things in games and then share those experiences outside of that gaming environment or to transfer or exchange those with other things, I think that, that's when we're going to see stratospheric growth. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, obviously, we've touched upon it, but I guess uh, to what extent do you subscribe to this idea of a metaverse? Uh, are you one of the sort of believers that uh, thinks ultimately, you know, three or four decades out, people will spend the majority of their time in, in digital environments? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd argue that's already true, right? So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm like the, the media I consume is almost entirely digital, um and you know i spend far too much time on my phone okay it's like it's still what you call digital you know you're still using your thing you know your your digit Mm. to interact with it um but i think you know if, if you break down the definition of a metaverse you know effectively it's this idea that there's a collective virtual shared space and um, like purists will say that it's about the convergence of AR and VR because it's about an enhanced physical reality, um, but a physically persistent virtual space. Like, so most people say to, to have a metaverse, it has to meet both those criteria. So clearly that's going to happen in phases in that, you know, we've kind of got this very basic virtual environments that are being built now. And you can even look at the spectrum in the context of Web3. You have lo-fi crypto voxels, you have Decentraland in the middle, and then you have Somnium at the end, which is building in Unity. You can port things you've built in Unity into Somnium. Um, the hardware uh, requirement to experience those worlds, again, sits on that spectrum. Um, I actually quite like there being that spectrum of lo-fi to hi-fi because it means that people can enter the digital economy with like poor internet connection, you know, um, cheap equipment in places outside of the West. Um, And they can still participate and earn in that digital economy. But at the same time, you're already seeing, you know, some really exciting stuff happen in in places like Somnium. Um, And because we now have this economic layer, and as we were just discussing earlier, we've proven this model of tokenization and game theory allowing you to bootstrap capital that flows into developing um, a particular infrastructure environment. Um, I'm really hopeful that that's going to accelerate it. And of course, with COVID, I think this year, 2020, has probably 10 x or how would I say it? It's accelerated uh, the metaverse happening by it might have even done a decade in a year, you know, I mean, we've just been experimenting much more with the virtual spaces, virtual assets. We've been spending much more time in digital, you know, gaming usage is going off the charts um, just generally. And so, um, and and we're kind of, we've got this wider macroeconomic environment, which uh, is, is driving more people to look at things like Bitcoin. So I think 2020 has been a catalyst for, for the metaverse, the big question is how do we make sure the metaverse is open? And so this comes to the second point I, I mentioned at, at the beginning of this rant, which was, so that's what I think about the metaverse and that's how excited I am. And I, I know all the innovators in, in, on our side of the fence are. 
on the flip side, because we've worked with projects that are looking to engage um, the large corporations in, in the space, the platforms, the, the gaming engines, you know, they are not all philosophically or just practically aligned to an open metaverse. You know, they are, a lot of their thinking is still very much shareholder centric. It's like, how can we create closed environments with lock-in um, f- to maximize the value for our shareholders, which is like a very web two paradigm rather than user centricity. How do we, you know, serve user centricity? And if we do that better, um, we, we innately create more stickiness. So, um, you know, the principles of an open metaverse, that's why I think as an industry now, Web3 needs to converge with people in gaming, people in VR, people in AR to make sure that we lobby or or create a paradigm which forces, creates such a strong economic pull towards an open metaverse that all of these big players like Facebook and Oculus um, and others are forced to migrate and adopt, you know, these Web3 principles in an open metaverse concept. Mm. It was um, a question actually that Ryan of Crucible was going to ask me uh, during one of uh, the outlier panels at, at, at your uh, diffusion event earlier in the year, um, but it, it jumped out to me. He asked, uh, what is something unique or non-obvious that you believe about the metaverse that many are either unaware of or would probably disagree with? Wow. I mean, honestly, I... It's, it's a really tricky one because like the metaverse is a bit like Web3. It's quite difficult to define. So, I mean, what I just cited to you is pretty much word for word the, the Wikipedia definition of the metaverse. And that's, that's rooted in some you know previous thinking by the, the forefathers of um, VR. But... You know, similarly, Web3 has taken on diff- different definitions over time. So, you know, Tim Berners-Lee's definition of Web3 is very different to um, Dr. Gavin Woods or Polkadot. Um, you know, previously it was the semantic web and and, and now obviously we, we share a different definition of Web3, one mainly led by um, Gavin Woods. So what is the metaverse? I don't know. I, I think, uh, again, there is this, I don't think there's an end state with the metaverse. So people will say the end state is this convergence of AR and VR. Um, I would say it's kind of a pathway. And so this first instance for me is I look at something like crypto voxels, as crude as it is, and I would say that that is the metaverse. You know, that's the beginnings of the metaverse. Um, and what I see happening in Somnium is is exciting too. So. Um, I I would argue we're seeing the beginnings of the metaverse already, um, and it's important that we start um, understanding that because the problem is if we think that the metaverse is an end state and it's ten years away, then we stop addressing some of the fundamental questions that are going to be critical to its DNA and how it evolves. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, yeah, I think those are all great points. Um, Moving on to the sort of closing questions now, um, what is one thing that has become clear to you since you embarked on your crypto journey that you wish you had known before? Oh man, that's such a tough question. Um, Hmm. uh, My answer, my kind of like default answer to a question like that is 
the timing piece. Like, you know, so I, I wasn't trained as an investor. I, to be honest, I didn't even know the job of a VC existed. Um, uh, it was only very late in life, like where I grew up, I'm pretty sure there were no VCs, certainly not remotely connected to, to my network. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've, I've not, I've kind of just learned investing by doing, uh, I don't have any kind of grounding in, uh, I didn't work at a VC firm before I created outlier. Um, so it's really just been exposure to, to investing, but having invested through this cycle, and this is the one thing I kind of tell to all the, the new analysts that are joining outlier or the industry generally is the hardest thing is timing because you can be right and lose a lot of money being right too, too early. So, um, so I was right in, we as outlier were right in the convergence thesis. I think, um, we were right in thinking about this as the data economy, you know, making bets such as ocean, but the reality is like when we were doing it, nobody else was really backing those kind of investments. It wasn't, that they didn't believe in them. They just thought rightly that there were more interesting investments. So for example, we, we ignored the first wave of exchanges and uh, decentralized exchanges. Um, and it wasn't necessarily because we didn't think that was important. Um, we, were, we were kind of just focused a, a little bit ahead of the curve on, on the data economy. And so like as an investor, we missed out on a lot of the investments in exchanges that we had access to that we, that we could have made. We just felt it was a bit transactional. We weren't really sure how much value would accrue there. And like retrospectively, that seems just so obvious, you know, shit, you should have invested in things like Binance or, or, or Coinbase, like wallets and exchanges. But we just saw so many coming at us at the time. It was like the thing that we were bombarded with we thought, well, how the hell are we going to pick the winner here? It feels very transactional. Surely it's going to be a race to the bottom with fees. In the end, of course, that's where the first unicorns happened. Um, we focus much more on the data economy. And it's only now, you know, we're talking four plus years since we started making our first investments, that the wider market cares, um, that you know, value is accruing in these platforms and we're starting to see things like IDOs happen on Ocean Protocol, which if you if your audience haven't been following, you should really look into the idea that you can basically, rather than do an ICO, you can have a um, a database of particular data, a data feed, an API, and you can effectively um, float that uh, uh, with an associated uh, uh, token into the data marketplace of ocean and, and people will speculate on its value and the value that will accrue from that that feed um and so you know that's happened much much later so we ignored some of the really obvious things um as an investor that we probably should have invested in um but we were right long term in our bets we we fortunately a lot of the bets that we made managed to survive the winter and and um, perhaps being a bit too early, um, which we were lucky with, to be honest with you, because uh, a lot of the time these projects would have just run out of money or failed or imploded along the way. Um, so I, I put that down to luck our side as an investor, but of course, tenacity from the founder's side. Um, and so this time, for example, it's really informed how I'm looking at some of the NFT platforms. As I said, like previously, I maybe would have dis discarded them 
I think having seen what happened with exchanges in a crypto context and decentralized exchanges, I'm now looking at NFT platforms and saying, wow, these things could be the next Binance and putting a premium on them. So um, we are, we're about to make a couple of investments in, in, into that space. So yeah, l- long answer, hopefully. Mm. Uh, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> no, no, very interesting. Um, yeah, I guess we kind of touched upon it. Um, in fact, I say kind of, you give a really good answer to this one, but if you wanted to give any additional kind of uh, on sort of what you see as the primary path to adoption for NFTs. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we're already starting to see it. So we're starting to see um, artists, and I use that broadly. So um, this could be, you know, fine artists. It can be like Gen Z uh, influencers, creators, and now we're starting to see musicians with audio NFTs who have known nothing about crypto. They've not been interested in it at all. They've not known anything about NFTs. They are starting to mint collections. They're doing collaborations. So you're getting multimedia collaborations like uh, you know, visual communications, like a, a video, plus the collaboration with an artist, and they're doing like drops. Um, and so I think these are the things that are going to bring in the masses in a way that if you think about with ICO mania, everyone was trying to get an influencer to shill their token. Um, and most of them ended up getting warnings from the SEC. Like here, an NFT is not a security. It depends on what rights you put into it. But it's like generally, very clearly not a security. It's a collectible. Um, as long as you're not promising financial returns, um, it's totally okay that an influencer might not just advocate, but launch their own NFT. Um, and so I think these are the things that are going to bring on billions of users. And I, I, I will be blown away if Kanye West doesn't start dropping, you know, his music as NFTs, uh, mm. build, building in all kinds of royalties rights. He's been talking about um, changing or disrupting the music industry by creating some open source contract templates, like general contract templates, like He's smart enough. He's got smart enough people around him that will go, well, wait a minute. These should be smart contract templates for royalties for musicians. Um, the minute he starts doing that or starts creating, you know, Yeezy NFT wearables for virtual environments, that's that's like, you know, tens, mm. hundreds of millions of people coming into crypto without even knowing it um, and beginning to adopt these principles around decentralization. Maybe they'll end up exploring concepts around sound money and Bitcoin. Um, and this is like, this is imminent. This is, this is, I think we just need a little bit more progress around um, allowing for the economic and um, transactional throughput for low value NFTs, um, whether that's ETH2 that enables that, or as you mentioned, some of these other um protocols like the minute that that happens and we start to see adoption from um some of these main people in the creative industry with billions you know tens hundreds of millions of followers um then i think we're going to have a bull run i mean to be honest with you i i think saying it'll be 4x 3 4x icos is modest hmm yeah i think um 
definitely definitely super intrigued to see what happens in that domain um again i mean touched upon it earlier but uh, like on the art side and stuff i've always noted that um you know nothing needs to happen for the technology to fulfill the sort of use case uh, and the value proposition is just so resonant to anyone that looks at it i mean i'm yet to come across any sort of digital artists which have been sucked in fallen into any of these platforms engage with them and then you know churned out I just haven't seen a single instance of it. They always double down. They always get more excited. They always evangelize others. Like, um, I definitely, yeah, I think, uh, think we're well, well on the way to, um, exactly that. Um, in, in terms of investable surface area, what do you personally find the most compelling and why? Uh, well, yeah, so that depends. You're talking personally or an outlier. So, you know, an outlier, we are focused on businesses, applying these innovations to use cases either you know established industries um, which can be Im- improved optimized or enabling in- entirely new use cases um, and we 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 look at the both ends of that spectrum uh, although i'm increasingly biased towards the more exotic end of like what's new and possible in the metaverse um, so I'm really excited by NFTs and DeFi, you know, borrowing and lending NFT as this collateral, um, but also things like um, NFTs as insurance premiums, policies, things like could NFTs be used? Could, could you wrap, could you perform KYC and AML um, via a approved uh, vendor supplier? Could you then wrap that in an NFT and use it as an access token to DeFi protocols. So the DeFi protocols don't have to carry out KYC and AML, which doesn't make them a counterparty, which means they don't have to be regulated. But they can provably say that they're only allowing people who have passed KYC and AML to use the network. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in uh, all the exotic stuff around digital wearables, avatars, portability of identities. People are still not solved. Um, SSI, self-sovereign identity, portability of identity at scale yet. Uh, until we solve that primitive, we can't um, we can't have Web three. We can't have an open metaverse. Um, we've got things like Boson Protocol um, in our portfolio already that are looking at um, being able to. They created a, a game, a mathematical game, which allows you to successfully redeem a physical, real world good for a digital instance, digital token, um, in a trustless way. Um, so there's still these primitives that need to happen to connect, um, to make, you know, physical and digital world merge, um, and, and for the, um, metaverse to, to truly come alive from that. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we're looking at like what, what, what is required for institutional adoption of DeFi. Um, and that's you know trustful oracles. Uh, you know, how can you uh, abstract some of the complexity within multi-protocol DeFi to allow for a form of decentralized prime brokerage to you know bring in uh, more institutional money to, to begin to leverage these? How can you manage uh, risk, both um, smart contract risk or the economic risk and um, uh, within these, uh, the designs of these protocols. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I'm almost overwhelmed by 
the interesting use cases. Um, the, the, the challenge is how you kind of prioritize these. Um, but what we're really lucky at, at Outlier is that, so with the Accelerator, we get to see a thousand uh, startups a year will apply to the Accelerator over the course of um, the, uh, the, th- the three programs. And, um, and we'll only select 30, but, you know, we'll do various levels of due diligence on those thousand applicants. So we basically get to speak to a thousand pre-seed seed stage startups. And so we, we've got like a really good gauge on what's coming down the pipe in the market. Um, probably, you know, our job is to, to have a 12 month window on, um, what's going to be coming down the market because most of our co-investor network are, you know, seed, late seed, series A. Um, So our job is to kind of curate this deal flow and match what's coming through the pipeline with what the venture market want to invest in, what they think is the right time to invest in these things. So the benefit to that is, to be honest with you, Piers, we don't have to be that smart, right? We just have to be good at, (laughs) <laughs> building some signal out of those thousand startups. Um, and we do that by just looking at the data, but then also you know, speaking with founders. Um, increasingly, our thesis is led by our portfolio. We've got 30 startups. Almost every time I write a thesis now, I write it with our portfolio. I don't I don't even leverage most of... Uh, I, I don't need like 10 analysts at Outlier anymore. I just mm. speak to our portfolio. Um and you know that portfolio is going to be a hundred startups um, very soon. So, um, are some of the you know brilliant, most brilliant founders in in Web three. So, um, so I, I kind of refine the thesis with our portfolio, with our brilliant co investor network. Um, you know, we we as a business spend a lot of time now just sitting down, talking with other VCs, finding out their thesis, and some really really smart people. Um, in the Web3 space, your, yourselves included, that help refine this thesis. So we, we don't really need our own thesis. We've just kind of got to somehow th- synthesize all these great relationships um, and effectively allow the venture industry from our co-investor network to signal to this pipeline of a 1,000 startups each year what they want to invest in and then help help make that marketplace happen. Mm, it's super interesting. Um, yeah, l- love love the idea of how that of how that functions now. Um, I always have to ask it. Uh, not sure, not sure how much of a gamer you are. Um, but what is your favorite video game ever? Ever. Well, so it's interesting. I was saying, you know, I don't know if you saw Atari are rolling out some collectibles um, for old Atari games, and um, I actually think that. Um, so they'll do well, but I don't think they'll do well as I don't think they'll do as well as collectibles associated to games of my generation. So I'm about to turn forty, sadly. Um, but the kind of games that I used to play on the uh, Amiga, for example, the Amiga 500, 1000, 1500. So things like Monkey Island, Civilization is probably my all-time favorite game. Syndicate. Um, Let's go with Civilization because it's just had like, I don't know, seven, eight instances. I don't really play it anymore because um, uh, I don't have the time, to be honest. But, I mean, you know, the amount of times I played every every version of that from when it was like a few pixels on a screen all the way through to the complex game it is now. Um, let's go with Civ. 
Awesome. Great pick. Um, what is the most impactful digital experience you've ever had? Ooh, probably recently. So as much as I hate Facebook, um, I, I got an Oculus, uh, the latest one. Um, and I just been playing around with it and it's just like mind blowing. I, I, um, one of the interesting things is if you think about gaming previously, it's quite passive, right? You, you've been working hard. You want to take a break. You'll just slump on the sofa and start playing FIFA or like whatever, um, modern, um, call of duty. And you're kind of sat on your ass, twiddling your thumbs and you can semi relax with an Oculus. It's a workout. Like you put it on and like whatever the game is almost always it's physically interacting. And I've got like a boxing game and I've, I've realized like I can only play it two, three times a week. So it's a workout. My, my back muscles ache after it. I've used muscles I've never used in my entire life. <laughs> um, so, um, so I think that like that idea that all of a sudden gaming becomes a physical thing rather than just like a mental or like a digit thing where you play with your fingers is, has kind of um, blown my mind. But then also they've got some like semi-interactive movies in there, some content and um like they're very fucking intense like there was one where i had to take the headset off because it was just like it was freaking me out it's like a very weird virtual world um and so the power of that experience is um i I like to think of it as digital acid so if you think about the counterculture movement how that was largely predicated on several things but notwithstanding um acid and psychedelics and people basically for the first time questioning reality well Mm. um for for the first time in our life we've got a generation that now has acid on tap they can just put on a headset they can go into worlds they're going to question reality they're going to question norms and i think if you you think about what happened with the the cultural counterculture revolution in the 60s and 70s i think what we're going to see in the 20s is going to be fucking mind-blowing like just for me as a grown adult let alone teenagers they're really going to be questioning what the hell is going on in the world and i'm i'm quite hopeful and optimistic about that Mm. there's definitely something hugely um profound about you know collapsing that boundary between sort of experience and the person experiencing it um i've found even in its current relatively rudimentary form like uh the brain's willingness to totally surrender itself to whatever experience you're checking at it is really surprising um have by you the way, there's, encountered... a big, there's a big Sorry. concern with that so and again this is the thing that really worries me so whilst i've got that oculus thing on my head um which is probably giving me cancer by the way i mean this is like a health concern but um uh it, it is picking up biometric data so mm-hmm. like my my res- emotional response to what it's showing me like my the flicker of my eye or like whatever else um, mm. I'm sure Facebook's recording that biometric data and that's like, um, I mean, I do these things cause I need to understand them, like sacrifice myself to the altar of one yeah. too. Um, but like, that's why we need an open metaverse because that is scary. Like Facebook, this is the Holy grail of advertising. If it can know you better than you know yourself and it probably already does that, but with but it goes biometric so data, it, yeah, you know, um, it's inside drawing. 
So drawing the Guardian boundaries as well, they've now got detailed floor plans of everyone's houses. You know, if, if it comes down to recommending furniture, if you want to go hyper-specialized ads, I mean, uh, the, the, the potential that they can tap is terrifying. Um, yeah, but uh, it has been cracked. It has been hacked now, the Quest 2, which is good. So you can side quest and jailbreak and whatnot. But um, yeah, we'll see where that goes. On, on the topic of the counterculture stuff, I wanted to mention, have you, have you, are you familiar at all with this um, cyberdelics movement that has begun to emerge? Of I, people um, basically tripping out in VR uh, and building, um, you know, suitably wacky experiences uh, for doing so. It's quite a quite an interesting area of exploration that some people are looking at. Um, oh. It's worth reading up on on a rainy day. That sounds intense. I'm not sure. I'm already freaked, up, freaked out enough <laughs> by VR. I think having a psychedelic experience in VR, but it is interesting. So I, I'm like part of my thesis on the digital art I'm collecting. If you look at it, so it's called hundred X art. So if you go to Instagram, hundred X art slash hundred X art, you'll see the collection there. And it is all quite trippy. And so I do think, especially in 2020, I, I'm hearing that psychedelics are, you know, um, increasingly being used outside of, you know, Silicon Valley bros trying to hack yeah. performance. And I, I'm seeing that come through in the, in the aesthetic of a lot of artists. And I, I do think there is something there about, on the one hand, we are going outside of ourselves in a virtual context and we're, um, we're seeing like programmable art and I'm investing a lot of machine learning art, so machines dreaming. And then on the other hand, uh, we're going inside ourselves because of all the crazy shit that's going on in COVID mm. and people are taking, you know, experimenting with psychedelics more. And I'm, I'm seeing that aesthetic. If you look at my channel, you'll see it. We've got like very trippy art built in gaming engines, some of it by machines, some of it by people. And it, it's definitely a, it's definitely a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've seen circulating on a couple of forums I'm a part of and maybe on friends feeds and stuff, the tagline, uh, if you can't go outside, go inside, um, <laughs> right, which encapsulates right. exactly that, uh, which is yeah, pretty amusing. Um, finally, out of all the books you've read, uh, which one has resonated with you the most? So I'm not sure about my favorite book, but related to everything that we've been talking about, it's something called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. Um, Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Network and the Rise of Digital Utopianism um, by a guy called Fred Turner. And it's uh, you, you look at the front cover and it looks like an awful academic book. He is actually an academic, but the content inside is so well written. And it basically talks about um, the, the rise of um, the, the kind of fusion of technical disciplines as a consequence of World War II. Um, and... Uh, how these disciplines created um, a what he calls a contact language. So when two when two uh, he, he describes it as races civilizations meet meet each other for the first time and they don't speak a language, how do they communicate? It's called a contact language. And so he said in World War Two, uh, all these disciplines, scientific disciplines, were brought together in the war effort, and the outcome, their contact language, was cybernetics. So it was thinking of technical systems in a biological context or biological systems in a technical context. Um, and this all happened in the 60s and 70s or fed into the 60s and 70s when everyone was taking psychedelics on the West Coast. And so you had people like Stuart Brand, who created the Whole Earth Network, eventually Wired Magazine. These were hippies taking acid, thinking about things like the internet and technical utopianism. And so a lot of the stuff that happened there 
informed still to this day a lot of the dogma that drives free free market fundamentalism in in tech and um a lot of libertarian um beliefs it kind of got hijacked in in the 80s and 90s um so uh, that that book just blows my mind it's just so rich and it's very good at making you sound smart at dinner parties <laughs> brilliant sounds sounds very interesting I'll, I'll definitely be checking it out um Jamie, I really appreciate you coming on. If um, people want to follow you, uh, you, you mentioned your Instagram as well. Um, where, where should they go to follow all of your content and stay up to date with Outlier? Yeah, so uh, on Twitter, I'm at Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, 247, the numbers. Um, on Instagram, yeah, it's 100x art, but that's like, you know, that's just a side thing. The most important thing is Outlier Ventures. So go to outlierventures.io. Um, if you are a pre-seed C-stage startup in Web3, working on any things that I just mentioned directly or adjacently, um, go to outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. That's our accelerator. We have just closed um, uh, applications for our winter cohort, but we always, we're always open for applicants for the next one. So just kind of drop us a note. Um, and you can probably find me on LinkedIn and other channels as well. Awesome. Well, thank you once again, Jamie. Really appreciate you making the time. Uh, and yeah, eager eager to see how things evolve with Outlier. Thanks for having me on.